CD7. Right, said Dibbler, rubbing his hands briskly. Sol! Sol appeared from behind a trestle table loaded with rolled-up plans and took a pencil out of his mouth. Yes, Uncle? How long will it take? About four days, Uncle. That's too long. Hire more people. I want it done by tomorrow. Right. But, Uncle, or you're sacked, said Dibbler. Sol looked frightened. I'm your nephew, Uncle, he protested. You can't sack nephews. Dibbler looked around and appeared to notice Victor for the first time. Ah, Victor, you're good at words, he said. Can I sack a nephew? Um, I don't think so. I think you have to disown them or something, said Victor lamely. But right, right, said Dibbler. Good man, I knew it was some kind of a word like that. Disown. Hear that, soul? Yes, uncle, said Sol dispiritedly. I'll go and see if I can find some more carpenters then, shall I? Right. Sol flashed Victor a look of terrified astonishment as he scurried away. Dibbler started haranguing a group of handlemen. Instructions spouted out of the man like water from a fountain. I reckon no one's going to Ankh Moorpork this morning, then, said a voice by Victor's knee. He's certainly very, um, ambitious today, said Victor. Not like himself at all. Gaspode scratched an ear. There was something I got to tell you. What was it now? Oh, yes, I remember. Your girlfriend is an agent of demonic powers. That night we saw her on the hill. She was probably on her way to commune with evil. What do you think of that, eh? He grinned. He was rather proud of the way he'd introduced the subject. That's nice, said Victor abstractedly. Dibbler was certainly acting even stranger than usual. Even stranger than usual for Holy Wood. Even... Yeah, said Gaspode, slightly annoyed at this reception. A cavorting at night with eldritchy occult intelligences from the other side, I shouldn't wonder. Good, said Victor. You didn't normally burn things in Holywood. You saved them and painted on the other side. Despite himself, he began to get interested. A cast of thousands, Dibbler was saying. I don't care where you get them from, we'll hire everyone in Holywood if we have to, right? And I want a helping them in their evil attempts to take over the old world, if I'm any judge, said Gaspode. Does she, said Victor. Dibbler was talking to a couple of apprentice alchemists now. What was that, a twenty-reeler? But no one had ever dreamed of going above five. Yeah, a digging away to rouse them from their ancient slumber to wreak havoc, style of thing, said Gaspode. Probably aided by cats. You mark my word. Look, just shut up a minute, will you? said Victor irritably. I'm trying to hear what they're saying. Oh, well, excuse me. I was just trying to save the world, muttered Gaspode. If ghastly creatures from before the dawn of time starts waving at you from under your bed, just you don't come complaining to me. What are you going on about? said Victor. Oh, nothing, nothing. Dibbler looked up, caught sight of Victor's craning face and waved at it. You, lad, come here, come here. Have I got a part for you? Have you? said Victor, pushing his way through the crowd. That's what I said. No, you asked if... Victor began and gave up. And where's Miss Ginger, may I ask, said Dibbler, late again? Probably sleeping in, 
grumbled a sullen and totally ignored voice from down below in the sea of legs. Probably takes it out of you, messing with the occult. Soul, soul, send someone to fetch her here. Yes, uncle. What can you expect, huh? People who like cats are capable of anything. You can't trust them. And find someone to transcribe the bed. Yes, uncle. But do they listen? Not them. Bet if I had a glossy coat and ran around yapping, they'd all listen all right. Dibbler opened his mouth to speak and then frowned and raised a hand. Where's that muttering coming from? he said. Probably saved the old world for him. By rights, I'd get a statue put up to me nose, but no, oh no, not for you, Mr. Gasboard, on account of you not being the right kind of person. So... The whine stopped. The crowd shuffled aside, revealing a small, bow-legged grey dog, which looked up impassively at Dibbler. Bark, it said innocently. Events always moved fast in Holywood, but the work on Blown Away sped forward like a comet. The other fruit-back clicks were halted. So were most of the others in the town, because Dibbler was hiring actors and handlemen at twice what anyone else would pay. And a sort of ark moorpork rose among the dunes. It would have been cheaper, Sol complained, to have risked the wrath of the wizards, sneaked some filming in ark moorpork itself, and then slipped someone a fistful of dollars to put a match to the place. Dibbler disagreed. Apart from anything else, he declared, it wouldn't look right. But it's the real Aunt Morpork, Uncle, said Sol. It's got to look exactly right. How could it not look right? Aunt Morpork doesn't look all that genuine, you know, said Dibbler thoughtfully. Of course it's bloody genuine, snapped Sol, the bonds of kinship stretching to snapping point. It's really there. It's really itself. You can't make it any more genuine. It's as genuine as it can get. Dibbler took his cigar out of his mouth. No, it isn't, he said. You'll see. Ginger turned up around lunchtime, looking so pale that even Dibbler didn't shout at her. She kept glaring at Gaspode, who tried to stay out of her way. Dibbler was preoccupied anyway. He was in his office explaining the plot. It was basically quite simple, running on the familiar lines of boy meets girl, girl meets another boy, boy loses girl, except that on this occasion there was a civil war in the middle of it. The origins of the Ark Morpork Civil War, 8.32pm, Groon the 3rd, 432, to 10.45am, the 4th, 432, have always been a subject of heated debate among historians. There are two main theories. One, the common people, having been heavily taxed by a particularly stupid and unpleasant king, decided that enough was enough, and that it was time to do away with the outmoded concept of monarchy and replace it with, as it turned out, a series of despotic overlords who still taxed heavily, but at least had the decency not to pretend the gods had given them the right to do it, which made everyone feel a bit better. Or, two... One of the players in a game of Cripple Mr Onion in a tavern had accused another of palming more than the usual number of aces, and knives had been drawn, and then someone had hit someone with a bench, and then someone else had stabbed someone, and arrows started to fly, and someone had swung on the chandelier, and a carelessly hurled axe had hit someone in the street, and then the watch had been called in, and someone had to set fire to the place, and someone had hit a lot of people with a table, and then everyone lost their tempers and commenced to start fighting. Anyway, it all caused a civil war, which is something every mature civilization needs to have had. 
Apart from anything else, it gives brother a rather better excuse to fight brother than the normal one, viz. what his wife said about our mum at Auntie Vera's funeral. The way I see it, said Dibbler, there's this high-born girl living all by herself in this big house, right? And her young man goes off to fight for the rebels, you see, and she meets this other guy, and there's this chemistry between them. They blow up, said Victor. He means they fall in love, said Ginger coldly. That sort of thing, nodded Dibbler. Eyes meeting across a crowded room, and she's all alone in the world except for the servants, and, and let's see, yeah, perhaps her pet dog. This'll be Laddie, said Ginger. Right, and of course, she's going to do everything she can to preserve the family mine. So she's kind of flirting with them both, the men, not the dog. And then one of them gets killed in the war, and the other one throws her over, but it's all OK because she's tough at heart. He sat back. What do you think? he said. The people sitting around the room looked uneasily at one another. There was a fidgety silence. It sounds great, uncle said Sol, who wasn't looking for any more problems today. Technically very challenging, said Gaffer. There was a chorus of relieved assent from the rest of the team. I don't know, said Victor slowly. Everyone else's eyes turned on him in the same way that spectators at the lion pit watched the first condemned criminal to be pushed out through the iron gate. He went on. I mean, is that all? It doesn't sound, well, very complicated for such a long click. People sort of falling in love while a civil war is going on in the background. I don't see how you can make much of a picture out of that. There was another troubled silence. A couple of people near Victor moved away. Dibbler was staring at him. Victor could hear, coming from under his chair, an almost inaudible little voice. Oh, of course. There's always a part for laddie. What's he got that I haven't got? That's what I'd like to know. Dibbler was still staring fixedly at Victor. Then he said, You're right. You're right. Victor's right. Why didn't anyone else spot it? That's just what I was thinking, Uncle, said Sol hurriedly. We need to flesh it out a bit. Dibbler waved his cigar vaguely. We can think up some more stuff as we go. No problem. Like, like... How about a chariot race? People always like a chariot race. It's gripping. Will he fall out? When will the wheels come off? Yeah, a chariot race. I've uh, been reading a bit about the Civil War, said Sol cautiously, and I don't think there's any mention of... Uh, of there not being chariot races, am I right? said Dibbler, in soapy tones containing the razor blade of menace. Sol sagged. Since you put it like that, Uncle, he said, you're right. And, Dibbler stared reflectively, we could try a great big shark. Even Dibbler sounded slightly surprised at his own suggestion. Sol looked hopefully at Victor. I'm almost certain sharks didn't fight in the Civil War, said Victor. You sure? I'm sure people would have noticed, said Victor. They'd have got trampled by the elephants, muttered Sol. Yeah, said Dibbler sadly. It was just a thought. Don't know why I said it, really. He stared at nothing for a while and then shook his head briskly. 
A shark, Victor thought. All the little golden fishes of your own thoughts are swimming away happily, and then the water moves and this great shark of a thought comes in from outside, as if someone's doing our thinking for us. You just don't know how to behave, Victor told Gaspode when they were alone. I could hear you grumbling under the chair the whole time. I might not know how to behave, but at least I don't go mooning around over some girl who's letting dreadful creatures of the night into the world, said Gaspode. I should hope not, said Victor, and then... What do you mean? Ah, now he listens. Your girlfriend... She's not my girlfriend. Would-be girlfriend, said Gaspode, is going out every night and trying to open that door in the hill. She tried it again last night after you'd gone and saw her. I stopped her, he added defiantly. Not that I expect any credit, of course. There's some dreadful in there, and she's letting it out. No wonder she's always late and tired in the mornings, what with spending the old night digging. How do you know they're dreadful, said Victor weakly. Put it like this, said Gaspode. If something's shoved in a cave under a hill behind great big doors... It's not cos people want it to come out every night and wash the dishes, is it? Course, he added charitably, I'm not saying she knows she's doing it. Probably they've got a grip on her weak and feeble cat-loving female mind and are twisting it to their evil will. You do talk a lot of crap sometimes, said Victor, but he didn't sound very convincing, even to himself. Ask her, then, said the dog smugly. I will. Right. Exactly how, though, thought Victor, as they trudged out into the sunshine. Excuse me, miss, my dog says that you... No. I say, Ginger, I understand that you're going out and... No. Hey, Ginge, how come my dog's... No. Perhaps he should just start up a conversation and wait until it got round naturally to monstrosities from beyond the void. But it would have to wait because of the row that was going on. It was over the third major part in Blown Away. Victor was, of course, the dashing but dangerous hero. Ginger was the only possible choice for the female lead, but the second male role, the dull but dutiful one, was causing trouble. Victor had never seen anyone stamp their foot in anger before. He'd always thought it was something they did only in books. But Ginger was doing it. "'Because I'd look an idiot, that's why,' she was saying." Sol, who was by now feeling like a lightning rod on a stormy day, waved his hand frantically. "'But he's ideal for the role,' he said. "'It calls for a solid character.' "'Solid? Of course he's solid. He's made of stone,' shouted Ginger. "'He might have a suit of chainmail and a false moustache, but he's still a troll.' Rock, looming monolithically over the pair of them, cleared his throat noisily. "'Excuse me,' <clears throat> he said. "'I hope we're not going to get elementalist about this.' Now it was Ginger's turn to wave her hands. "'I like trolls,' she said. "'As trolls, that is. "'But you can't seriously mean me to do a romantic scene with a... "'with a... a cliff face.' "'Now look here,' said Rock, his voice winding up like a pitcher's arm. "'What you're saying is, is okay for trolls to be shown bashing people with clubs. "'It's not okay to show trolls have finer feelings like squashy humans.' "'She's not saying that at all,' said Sol desperately. "'She's not. "'If you cut me, do I not bleed?' said Rock. 
Uh, no, you don't, said Sol. But, ah, yes, but I would. If I had blood, I'd bleed all over the place. And another thing, said a dwarf, prodding Sol in the knee. It says in the script that she owns a mine full of happy, laughing, singing dwarfs, right? Oh, yes, said Sol, putting the troll problem on one side. What about it? It's a bit stereotypical, isn't it? said the dwarf. I mean, it's a bit dwarf equals minus. I don't see why we have to be typecaster like this all the time. But most dwarfs are minors, said Sol desperately. Well, OK, but they're not happy about it, said another dwarf, and they don't sing the whole time. That's right, said a third dwarf, cos of safety, see? You can bring the whole roof down on your singing. And there's no mines anywhere near Ankh-Morpork, said possibly the first dwarf, although they all looked identical to Sol. Everyone knows that. It's on loam. We'd be a laughing stock if our people saw us mining for jewels anywhere near Ankh-Morpork. I wouldn't say I've got a cliff face, rumbled Rock, who sometimes took a little time to digest things. Craggy, maybe, but not cliffy. The fact is, said one of the dwarfs, we don't see why humans get all the good roles and we get all the titchy bit parts. Sol gave the jolly little laugh of someone in a corner who hopes that a joke will lighten the atmosphere a bit. Ah, he said, that's because you... Yes, said the dwarfs in unison. Um, said Sol, and struck out quickly for a change of subject. You see, the whole point, as I understand it, is that Ginger will do absolutely anything to keep the mansion and the mine and... I hopes we can get on, said the gaffer. Only I've got to muck the imps out in an hour. Oh, I see, said Rock. I'm absolutely anything, am I? You don't keep mines, said one of the dwarfs. Mines keep you. You take the treasure out. You don't put it in. That's fundamental to the whole mine business. Well, perhaps this mine is worked out, said Sol quickly. Anyway, she... Well, in that case, you don't keep it, said another dwarf in the expansive manner of one about to settle down to a good long explanation. You abandon it, propping and shoring when necessary and sink another shaft on a line with the major seam. Allowing for fault escarpments and uniclinal structures, said another dwarf. Of course, allowing for full escarpments and unicladal structures. And then... And general crustal shifting. All right, and then... Unless you're just cutting and filling, of course. Granted, but... I don't see, Rock began, that my face could be called... Shut up! screamed Sol. Everyone shut up! Shut up! Up! The next person who doesn't shut up will never work in this town again. Understand? Do I make myself clear? Right. He coughed and continued in a more normal voice. Very well. Now, I want it understood that this is a breathtaking, blockbusting, romantic film about a woman's fight to save the, uh He consulted his clipboard and went on valiantly... Uh, everything she loves against the background of a world gone mad, and I don't want any more trouble from anyone. A dwarf tentatively raised his hand. Excuse me. Yes, said Sol. 
Why is it all Mr. Dibbler's films are set against the background of a world gone mad? said the dwarf. Sol's eyes narrowed. Because Mr. Dibbler, he growled, is a very observant man. Dibbler had been right. The new city was the old city distilled. Narrow alleys were narrower, tall buildings taller, gargoyles were more fearsome, roofs more pointed. The towering tower of art in Unseen University was here even taller and more precariously towering, even though it was at the same time only one quarter of the size. The Unseen University was more baroque and buttressed, the patrician's palace more pillared. Carpenters swarmed over a construction that, when it was finished, would make Ankh-Morpork look like a very indifferent copy of itself, except that the buildings in the original city were not, by and large, painted on canvas stretched over timber, and didn't have the dirt carefully sprayed on. Ankh-Morpork's buildings had to get dirty all by themselves. It looked far more like Ankh-Morpork than Ankh-Morpork ever had. Ginger had been ushered off to the changing tents before Victor had a chance to speak to her, and then shooting started and it was too late. Century of the Fruit Bat, and now it said on the sign in slightly smaller type, more stars than there are in the heavens, 49,873, according to number Richter's clockwork celestial enumerator, believed that a click should be made in less than ten times the time it took to watch. Blown away was going to be different. There were battles. There were night scenes. The imps painting away furiously by torchlight. Dwarfs worked merrily in a mine never seen before or since, where fake gold nuggets the size of chickens had been stuck in the plaster walls. Since Sol demanded that their lips should be seen to move, they sang a risque version of the Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho song, which had rather caught on among Holywood's dwarf population. It was just possible that Sol knew how it all fitted together. Victor didn't. It was always best, he had learned, never to try and follow the plot of any click you were in. And in any case, Sol wasn't just shooting back to front, but sides to middle as well. It was totally confusing. Just like real life. When he did get a chance to talk to Ginger, two handlemen and everyone else in the cast, who currently had nothing to do, was watching them. OK, people, said Sol, this is the scene near the end where Victor meets Ginger after all they've been through together and on the card he'll be saying... Uh, he stared at the big black oblong handed to him. Yes, he'll be saying, Frankly, my dear, I'd give anything for one of Harger's prime pork ribs in special curry sauce. Sol's voice slowed and stopped. When he breathed in, it was like a whale surfacing. Who wrote this? One of the artists cautiously raised a hand. Mr Dibbler told me to, he said quickly. Sol leafed through the big heap of cards that represented the dialogue for a large part of the click. His lips tightened. He nodded to one of the people with clipboards and said, Could you just run over to the office and ask my uncle to stroll over here if he's got a moment? Sol pulled a card out of the stack and read, I sure miss the old mine... But for a taste of real country cooking, I always go to Harger's house of... I see. He selected another at random. Ah, I see here a wounded royalist soldier's last words are what I wouldn't give right now for a one dollar eat till it hurts special at Harger's house of ribs, mother. I think it's very moving 
said Dibbler behind him. There won't be a dry eye in the house, you'll see. Uncle, Sol began. Dibbler raised his hands. I said I'd raise the money somehow, he said, and Shamhag is even helping us with the food for the barbecue scene. You said you weren't going to interfere with the script. That's not interfering, said Dibbler stolidly. I don't see how that could be considered interfering. I just polished it up here and there. I think it's rather an improvement. Besides, Argus all you can gobble for a dollar is amazing value these days. But the click is set hundreds of years ago, shouted Sol. Well, said Dibbler, I suppose someone could say, I wonder if the food at Harger's house of ribs will still be as good in hundreds of years' time. That isn't moving pictures. That is crass commerce. I hope so, said Dibbler. We're in real trouble if it isn't. Now look, Sol began threateningly. Ginger turned to Victor. Can we go somewhere and talk, she said quietly, without your dog? she added in her normal voice. Definitely without your dog. You want to talk to me, said Victor. There hasn't been much of a chance, has there? Right, certainly. Gaspode, stay, there's a good dog. Victor derived a quiet satisfaction from the brief look of pure disgust that flashed across Gaspode's face. Behind them, the eternal Holywood argument had wound up to cruising speed, with Sol and CMOT standing nose-to-nose -nose and arguing in a circle of amused and interested staff. "'I don't have to take this, you know. I can resign.' "'No, you can't. You're my nephew. You can't resign from being a nephew.' Ginger and Victor sat down on the steps of a canvas and wood mansion. They had absolute privacy. No one was going to bother to watch them with a rip-snorter of a row going on a few yards away. Ah, uh, said Ginger, her fingers twisted amongst themselves. Victor couldn't help noticing that the nails were worn down. Ah, uh, she said again. Her face was a picture of anguish and pale under the makeup. She isn't beautiful, Victor felt himself think, but you could have real trouble believing it. I... I don't know how to say this, she said, but, um, has anyone noticed me walking in my sleep? To the hill, said Victor. Her head whipped around like a snake. You know? How do you know? Have you been spying on me? She snapped. It was the old ginger again, all fire and venom and the aggressiveness of paranoia. Laddie found you asleep yesterday afternoon, said Victor, leaning back. During the day? Yes. She put her hands to her mouth. It's worse than I thought, she whispered. It's getting worse. You know when you met me up the hill just before Dibbler found us and thought we were spooning? She blushed. Well, I didn't even know how I'd got there. And you went back last night, said Victor. The dog told you, did he? She said dully. Yes, sorry. It's every night now, moaned Ginger. I know, because even if I go back to bed, there's... "'Sand all over the floor, and my nails are all broken. "'I go there every night, and I don't know why.' "'You're trying to open the door,' said Victor. "'There's this big ancient door now where part of the hill has slid away, "'and yes, I've seen it, but why?' "'Well, I've got a couple of ideas,' said Victor cautiously. "'Tell me. Um, well, have you heard of something called a genius loci?' "'No.' Her brow wrinkled. It's clever, is it? It's the sort of 
soul of a place. It can be quite strong. It can be made strong by worship or love or hate, if it goes on long enough. And I'm wondering if the spirit of a place can call to people, and animals too. I mean, Holy Wood is a different sort of place, isn't it? People act differently here. Everywhere else, the most important things are gods or money or cattle. Here, the most important thing is to be important. He had her full attention. Yes, she said encouragingly, and it doesn't sound too bad so far. I'm getting to the bad bit. Oh. Victor swallowed. His brain was bubbling like a bouillon. Half-remembered facts surfaced tantalizingly and sank again. Dry old tutors in high old rooms had been telling him dull, old things which were suddenly as urgent as a knife, and he dredged desperately for them. I'm not... he croaked. He cleared his throat. I'm not sure it's right, though, he managed. It's come from somewhere else. It can happen. You've heard of ideas whose time has come? Yes. Well, they're the tame ones. There's other ones, ideas so full of vigour they don't even wait for their time. Wild ideas, escaped ideas. And the trouble is, when you get something like that, you get a hole. He looked at her polite, blank expression. Analogies bubbled to the surface like soggy croutons. Imagine all the worlds that have ever been are in one sense pressed together like a sandwich. A pack of cards, a book, a folded sheet. If conditions are right... Things can go through rather than along. But if you open a gate between worlds, there are terrible dangers. As for instance... As for instance... As for instance what? It rose up in his memory like the suddenly discovered bit of suspicious tentacle just when you thought it was safe to eat the paella. It could be that something else is trying to come through the same way, he ventured. In the... Uh, in the nowhere, between the somewhere, there are creatures which, on the whole, I'd rather not describe to you. You already have, said Ginger in a tense voice, and they're generally quite keen to get into the real worlds, and perhaps they're somehow making contact with you when you're asleep, and... He gave up. He couldn't bear her expression any more. I could be entirely wrong, he said quickly. You've got to stop me opening the door, she whispered. I could be one of them. "'Oh, I don't think so,' said Victor loftily. "'They've generally got too many arms, I think.' "'I tried putting tacks on the floor to wake myself up,' said Ginger. "'Ooh, sounds awful. Did it work?' "'No, they were all back in their bags in the morning. "'I must have picked them up again.' "'Victor pursed his lips. "'That could be a good sign,' he said. "'Why? "'If you were being summoned by unpleasant things, "'I think they wouldn't bother what you walked over.' Uh. "'You haven't got any idea why it's all happening, have you?' Victor said. "'No, but I always get the same dream.' Her eyes narrowed. "'Hey, how come you know all this stuff?' "'I was... Uh, uh, a wizard told me once,' said Victor. "'You're not a wizard yourself?' "'Oh, absolutely not. No wizards in Holywood. <laughs> and this dream?' Oh, it's too strange to mean anything. Anyway, I used to dream it even when I was small. It starts off with this mountain, only it's not a normal mountain, because... Detritus the Troll loomed over them. Young Mr. Dibbler says it's time to start shooting again, he rumbled. Will you come to my room tonight? hissed Ginger. Please, you can wake me up if I start sleepwalking again. Well, 
Yes, but your landlady might not like it, Victor began. Oh, Mrs. Cosmopolite is very broad-minded, said Ginger. She is? She'll just think we're having sex, said Ginger. Ah, said Victor hollowly. That's all right, then. Young Mr. Dibbler don't like being kept waiting, said Detritus. Oh, shut up, said Ginger. She stood up and brushed the dust off her dress. Detritus blinked. People didn't usually tell him to shut up. A few worried fault lines appeared on his brow. He turned and tried another loom, this time aimed at Victor. Young Mr. Dibbler don't like... Oh, go away, snapped Victor, and wandered off after her. Detritus stood alone and screwed up his eyes in the effort of thought. Of course, people did occasionally say things like go away and shut up to him, but always with the tremor of terrified bravado in their voice, and so naturally he always reposted and hit them. But no one had ever spoken to him as if his existence was the last thing in the world they could possibly be persuaded to worry about. His massive shoulders sagged. Perhaps all this hanging around Ruby was bad for him. Sol was standing over the artist who lettered the cards. He looked up as Victor and Ginger approached. Right, he said. Places, everyone. We'll go straight on to the ballroom scene. He looked pleased with himself. Are the words all sorted out? said Victor. No problem, said Sol proudly. He glanced at the sun. We've lost a lot of time, he added, so let's not waste any more. Fancy you being able to get CMOT to give in like that, said Victor. He had no argument at all. He's gone back to his office to sulk, I expect, said Sol, loftily. OK, everyone, let's all get... The lettering artist tugged at his sleeve. I was just wondering, Mr Sol, what you wanted me to put in the big scene now Victor doesn't mention ribs. Don't worry me now, man. But if you could just give me an idea... Sol firmly unhooked the man's hand from his sleeve. Frankly, he said, I don't give a damn, and he strode off towards the set. The artist was left alone. He picked up his paintbrush. His lips moved silently, shaping themselves around the words. Then he said, Hmm, nice one. Banana Invective, cunningest hunter on the great yellow plains of Clatch, held his breath as he tweezered the last piece into place. Rain drummed on the roof of his hut. There, that was it. He'd never done anything like this before, but he knew he was doing it right. He'd trapped everything from zebras to thargas in his time, and what had he got to show for it? But yesterday, when he'd taken a load of skins into Nkouf, he heard a trader say that if any man ever built a better mousetrap, then the world would beat a path to his door. He'd lain awake all night thinking about this. Then, in the first light of dawn, he scratched a few designs on the hut wall with a stick and got to work. He had taken the opportunity to look at a few mousetraps while he was in the town, and they were definitely less than perfect. They hadn't been built by hunters. Now he picked up the twig and pushed it gently into the mechanism. Snap! Perfect! Now all he had to do was to take it into Nkouf and see if the merchant... The rain was very loud indeed. In fact, it sounded more like... When Banana woke up, he was lying in the ruins of his hut, and they were in a half-a-mile swathe of trodden mud. He looked muzzily at what remained of his home. He looked at the brown scar that stretched from horizon to horizon. 
He looked at the dark, muddy clouds just visible at one end of it. Then he looked down. The better mousetrap was now a rather nice two-dimensional design, squashed into the middle of an enormous footprint. He said, I didn't know it was that good. According to the history books, the decisive battle that ended the Ankh-Morpork Civil War was fought between two handfuls of bone-weary men in a swamp early one misty morning, and although one side claimed victory, ended with a practical score of humans zero, ravens one thousand, which is the case with most battles. Something that both dibblers were agreed on was that if they'd been in charge, no one would have been able to get away with such a low-grade war. It was a crime that people should have been allowed to stage a major turning point in the history of the city without using thousands of people and camels and ditches and earthworks and siege engines and trabuckets and horses and banners. And in a bloody fog too, said Gaffer, no thought about light levels. He surveyed the proposed field of battle, shading his eyes from the sun with one hand. There would be eleven handlemen working on this one from every conceivable angle. One by one they held up their thumbs. Gaffer rapped on the picture box in front of him. Ready, lads, he said. There was a chorus of squeaks. Good lads, he said. Get this one right and they can have an extra lizard for the tea. He grasped the handle with one hand and picked up a megaphone with the other. Ready when you are, Mr Dibbler, he yelled. CMOT nodded and was about to raise his hand when Sol's arm shot out and grabbed it. The nephew was staring intently at the ranged ranks of horsemen. Just one moment, he said levelly, and then cupped his hands and raised his voice to a shout. Hey, you there, fifteenth night along, y yes, you. Would you mind unfurling your banner, please? Thank you. Could you please report to Mrs Cosmopolite for a new one? Thank you. Sol turned to his uncle, his eyebrows raised. It's, it's a heraldic device, said Dibbler quickly. Crossed spare ribs on a bed of lettuce, said Sol. Very keen on their food, those old knights. And I liked the motto, said Sol. Every knight is gourmet knight at Harger's House of Ribs. If we had sound, I wonder what his battle cry would have been. You're my own flesh and blood, said Dibbler, shaking his head. How can you do this to me? Because I'm your own flesh and blood, said Sol. Dibbler brightened. Of course, when you looked at it like that, it didn't seem so bad. This is Hollywood. To pass the time quickly, you just film the clock hands moving fast. In Unseen University, the resograph is already recording seven plibs a minute. And towards the end of the afternoon, they burned Ankh-Morpork. The real city had been burned down many times in its long history, out of revenge or carelessness or spite, or even just for the insurance. Most of the big stone buildings that actually made it a city, as opposed simply to a load of hovels all in one place, survived them intact, and many people, the ones living in stone buildings anyway, considered that a good fire, every hundred years or so, was essential to the health of the city, since it helped to keep down the rats, roaches, fleas, and, of course, people not rich enough to live in stone houses. The famous fire during the Civil War had been noteworthy simply because it was started by both sides at the same time in order to stop the city falling into enemy hands. 
It had not otherwise, according to the history books, been very impressive. The Ankh had been particularly high that summer, and most of the city had been too damp to burn. This time it was a lot better. Flames poured into the sky. Because this was Holywood, everything burned. Because the only difference between the stone buildings and the wooden buildings was what was painted on the canvas. The two-dimensional unseen university burned. The patrician's backless palace burned. Even the scale model tower of art gushed flames like a Roman candle. Dibbler watched it with concern. After a while, Sol, behind him, said, Waiting for something, Uncle? <clears throat> oh, no. I hope Gaffer's concentrating on the tower, that's all, said Dibbler. Very important symbolic uh, landmark. It certainly is, said Sol. Very important. So important, in fact, that I sent some lads up it at lunchtime just to make sure it was all OK. You did? said Dibbler. Yes, and do you know what they found? They found someone had nailed some fireworks to the outside. Lots and lots of fireworks on fuses. It's a good thing they found them, because if the things had gone off, it would have ruined the shot, and we'd never be able to do it again. And do you know, they said it looked as though the fireworks would spell out words. Sol added. What words? Never crossed my mind to ask them, said Sol. Never crossed my mind. He stuck his hands in his pockets and began to whistle under his breath. After a while, he glanced sidelong at his uncle. Hottest ribs in town, he muttered. Really? Dibbler looked sulky. It would have got a laugh anyway, he said. Look, uncle, this can't go on, said Sol. No more of this commercial messing about, right? Oh, all right. Sure? Dibbler nodded. I've said all right, haven't I? I want a bit more than that, Uncle. I solemnly promise not to do any more meddling in the clique, said Dibbler gravely. I'm your uncle, I'm family. Is that good enough for you? Well, all right. When the fire had died down, they raked some of the ashes together for a barbecue at the end of shooting party under the stars. The velvet sheet of the night drapes itself over the parrot cage that is holy wood, and on warm nights like this, there are many people with private business to pursue. A young couple, strolling hand in hand across the dunes, were frightened to near insensibility when an enormous troll jumped out at them from behind a rock, waving its arms and shouting, Scared you, did I? said Detritus, hopefully. They nodded, white-faced. Well, that's a relief, said the troll. He patted them on the heads, forcing their feet a little way into the sand. Thanks very much. Much obliged. Have a nice night, he added mournfully. He watched them walk off hand in hand, and then burst into tears. In the Handelmen's shed, C.M.O.T. Dibbler stood watching thoughtfully as Gaffer pasted together the day's footage. The Handelman was feeling very gratified. Mr. Dibbler had never shown the slightest interest in the actual techniques of film handling before now. This may have explained why he was a little freer than usual with guild secrets that had been handed sideways from one generation to the same generation. "'Why are all the little pictures alike?' said Dibbler, as the handleman wound the film onto its spool. "'Seems to me that's wasting money.' "'They're not really alike,' said Gaffer. "'Each one's a bit different, see, and so people's eyes see a lot of little, slightly different pictures very fast, and their eyes think they're watching something move.' Dibbler took his cigar out of his mouth. "'You mean it's all a trick?' he said, astonished. "'Yeah, that's right,' the handleman chuckled and reached for the paste pot. 
Dibbler watched in fascination. Well, I thought it was all a special kind of magic, he said, a shade disappointed. Now you tell me it's just a big find the lady game. Sort of. You see, people don't actually see any one picture. They see a lot of them at once. See what I mean? Hey, I got lost at sea there. Every picture adds to the general effect. People don't see, sorry, any one picture. They just see the effect caused by a lot of them moving past very quickly. Do they? That's very interesting, said Dibbler. Very interesting indeed. He flicked the ash from his cigar towards the demons. One of them caught it and ate it. So what would happen, he said slowly, if, say, just one picture in the whole clique was different? Funny you should ask, said Gaffer. It happened the other day when we were patching up beyond the Valley of the Trolls. One of the apprentices had stuck in just one picture from the gold rush, and we all went around all morning thinking about gold and not knowing why. It was as if it had got straight into our heads without our eyes seeing it. Of course, I took my belt to the lad when we spotted it, but we'd never have found it if I hadn't happened to look at the click slowly. He picked up the paste brush again, squared a couple of strips of film and fixed them together. After a while, he became aware that it had gone very quiet behind him. You all right, Mr. Dibbler? he said. Hmm? Oh. Dibbler was deep in thought. Just one picture had all that effect. Oh, yes. You all right, Mr. Dibbler? Never felt better, lad, Dibbler said. Never felt better. He rubbed his hands together. Let's you and me have a little chat. Man to man, he added, because, you know, he laid a friendly hand on Gaffer's shoulder, I have a feeling this could be your lucky day. And in another alleyway, Gaspode sat muttering to himself. Mm. Stay, he says, giving me orders, just so his girlfriend doesn't have to have horrid smelly dog in her room. So here's me, man's best friend, sitting out in the rain. If it was raining anyway, maybe it ain't raining, but if it was raining, I'd be soaked by now. Serve him right if I just upped and walked away. I could do it too, any time I wanted. I don't have to sit here. I hope no one's thinking I'm sitting here because I've been told to sit here. I'd like to see the human who could give me orders. I'm sitting here because I want to. Yeah. Then he whined for a bit and shuffled into the shadows where there was less chance of being seen. In the room above, Victor was standing facing the wall. This was humiliating. It had been bad enough bumping into a grinning Mrs. Cosmopolite on the stairs. She had given him a big smile and a complicated elbow-intensive gesture that he felt certain sweet little old ladies shouldn't know. There were clinks and the occasional rustle behind him as Ginger got ready for bed. "'She's really very nice. "'She told me yesterday that she had had four husbands,' said Ginger. "'What did she do with the bones?' said Victor. "'I'm sure I don't know what you mean,' said Ginger, sniffing. "'All right, you can turn round now. I'm in bed.' "'Victor relaxed and turned round. "'Ginger had drawn the covers up to her neck "'and was holding them there like a besieged garrison manning the barricades. "'Now you've got to promise me,' she said, "'that if anything happens you won't try and take advantage of the situation.' Victor sighed. I promise. It's just that I've got a career to think about, you see. Yes, I see. Victor sat by the lamp and took the book out of his pocket. I'm not trying to be ungrateful or anything like that, Ginger went on. 
Victor ruffled through the yellowing pages, looking for the place he'd got to. Scores of people had spent their lives by Holywood Hill, apparently just to keep a fire alight, and chant three times a day. Why? Who was the guard on the gate? What are you reading? said Ginger after a while. It's an old book I found, said Victor shortly. It's about Holy Wood. Oh. I should get some sleep if I were you, he said, twisting so that he could make out the crabby script in the lamplight. He heard her yawn. Did I finish telling you about the dream? she said. I don't think so, said Victor, in what he hoped was a politely discouraging voice. It always starts off with this mountain. Look, you really shouldn't be talking. And there are stars around it, you know, in the sky, but one of them comes down and it's not a star at all. It's a woman holding a torch over her head. Victor slowly turned back to the front of the book. Yes, he said carefully, and she keeps on trying to tell me something, something I can't make out, about waking something, and then there are a lot of lights and this roar like a lion or a tiger or something, you know, and then I wake up. Victor's finger idly traced the outline of the mountain under the stars. It's probably just a dream, he said. It probably doesn't mean anything. Of course, Holywood Hill wasn't pointed, but perhaps it was once in the days where there had been a city where now there was a bay. Good grief, something must have really hated this place. You don't remember anything else about the dream by any chance? he asked, with feigned casualness. There was no answer. He crept to the bed. She was asleep. He went back to the chair, which was promising to become annoyingly uncomfortable within half an hour, and turned down the lamp. Something in the hill, that was the danger. The more immediate danger was that he was going to fall asleep too. He sat in the dark and worried. How did you wake up a sleepwalker anyway? He recalled vaguely that it was said to be a very dangerous thing to do. There were stories about people dreaming about being executed, and then when someone had touched them on the shoulder to wake them up, their heads had fallen off. How anyone ever knew what a dead person had been dreaming wasn't disclosed. Perhaps the ghost came back afterwards and stood at the end of the bed complaining. The chair creaked alarmingly as he shifted position. Perhaps if he stuck one leg out like this, he could rest it on the end of the bed, so that even if he did fall asleep, she wouldn't be able to get past without waking him. Funny, really. For weeks he'd spent the days sweeping her up in his arms, defending her bravely from whatever it was Morrie was dressed up as today, kissing her, and generally riding off into the sunset to live happily and possibly even ecstatically ever after. There was probably no one who'd ever watched one of the cliques who would possibly believe that he'd spend the night sitting in her room on a chair made out of splinters. Even he found it hard to believe, and here he was. You didn't get this sort of thing in cliques. Cliques were all passion in a world gone mad. If this was a clique, he certainly wouldn't be sitting around in the dark on a hard chair. He'd be... well, he wouldn't be sitting around in the dark on a hard chair, that was for sure. The bursar locked his study door behind him. You had to do that. The Arch-Chancellor thought that knocking on doors was something that happened to other people. At least the horrible man seemed to have lost interest in the Rezograph, or whatever Richtor had called it. The bursar had had a dreadful day trying to conduct university business while knowing that the document was hidden in his room. He pulled it out from under the carpet, turned up the lamp, and began to read. He'd be the first to admit that he wasn't any good at mechanical things. He gave up quickly on the bits about pivots, octaron pendulums, and air being compressed in bellows. 
he honed in again on the paragraph that said, "'If then disturbances in the fabric of reality "'cause ripples to spread out from the epicentre, "'then the pendulum will tilt, "'compress the air in the relevant bellows, "'and cause the ornamental elephant closest to the epicentre "'to release a small lead ball into a cup, "'and thus the direction of the disturbance... Whoom, whoom. "'He could hear it even up here.' They'd just heaped more sandbags around it. No one dared move it now. The bursar tried to concentrate on his reading. Can be estimated by the number and force... The bursar found himself holding his breath. Of the expelled pellets, which I estimate in serious disturbances, blip, may well exceed two pellets, blip, expelled several inches, blip, during the blip course blip of blip one blip, Month. Blip. Gaspode woke up and quickly hauled himself into what he hoped looked like an alert position. Someone was shouting, but politely, as if they wanted to be helped, but only if it wouldn't be too much trouble. He trotted up the steps. The door was ajar. He pushed it open with his head. Victor was lying on his back, tied to a chair. Gaspode sat down and watched him intently in case he was about to do something interesting. All right, are we? he said after a while. "'Don't just sit there, idiot. Untie these knots,' said Victor. "'Idiot I may be, but tied up I ain't,' said Gaspode evenly. "'Got the jump on you, did she?' "'I must have nodded off for a moment,' said Victor. "'Long enough for her to get up, rip up a sheet, and tie you to the chair,' said Gaspode. "'Yes, all right, all right. Can't you gnaw through it or something?' "'Were these teeth?' "'I could fetch someone, though,' said Gaspode, and grinned. "'Um... "'I'm not sure that's a very good... Uh, "'Don't worry, I'll be right back,' said Gaspode, and padded out. "'It might be a bit difficult to explain,' Victor called after him, "'but the dog was down the stairs and ambling along "'through the maze of backlots and alleys "'to the rear of Century of the Fruit Bat. "'He shuffled up to the high fence. "'There was the gentle clink of a chain. "'Laddie,' he whispered hoarsely. "'There was a delighted bark. Ooh, 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 "'Good boy, laddie! Ooh, ooh. "'Yeah!' said Gaspard. Yeah, he sighed. Had he ever been like that? If he had, thank goodness he hadn't known about it. Me, good boy. Oof, oof. Sure, sure, laddie, be quiet, muttered Gaspard and squeezed his arthritic body under the fence. Laddie licked his face as he emerged. I'm too old for this sort of stuff, he muttered and peered at the kennel. A chalk chain, he said, a bloody chalk chain. Stop pulling on it, you daft idiot. Back up, back up. Right. Gaspode shoved a paw into the loop and eased it over Laddie's head. There, he said. If we all knew how to do that, we'd be running the world. Now, stop kidding around, we need you. Laddie sprang to tongue-lolling attention. If dogs could salute, he would have done. Gaspode wriggled under the fence again and waited. He could hear Laddie's footsteps the other side, but the big dog seemed to be padding away from the fence. No, hissed Gaspode. Follow me. There was a scurry of paws, a swishing noise, and Laddie cleared the high fence and did a four-point landing in front of him. Gaspode unpeeled his tongue from the back of his throat. Good boy, he muttered. Good boy. Victor sat up, rubbing his head. I caught myself a right crack when the chair fell backwards he said. Laddie sat looking expectantly with the remains of the sheet in his mouth. "'What's he waiting for?' said Victor. "'You've got to tell him he's a good boy,' 
sighed Gaspode. Doesn't he expect some meat or a sweet or something? Gaspode shook his head. Just tell him what a good boy he is. It's better in hard currency for dogs. Oh, well then, good boy, laddie. Laddie bounced up and down excitedly. Gaspode swore under his breath. Sorry about this, he said. Pathetic, isn't it? Good boy, find Ginger, said Victor. Look, I can do that, said Gaspo desperately, as Laddie started snuffling at the floor. We all know where she's headed. You don't have to go and... Laddie dashed out of the door, but gracefully. He paused at the bottom of the stairs and gave an eager, follow me, bark. Pathetic, said Gaspo miserably. The stars always seemed to shine more brightly over Holywood. Of course, the air was clearer than Ankh, and there wasn't much smoke, but even so, they were somehow bigger, too, and closer, as if the sky was a vast lens. Laddie streaked over the dunes, pausing occasionally for Victor to catch up. Gaspode followed on some way behind, rolling from side to side and wheezing. The trail led to the hollow, which was empty. The door was open about a foot. Scuffed sand around it indicated that whatever may or may not have come out, Ginger had gone in. Victor stared at it. Laddie sat by the door, staring hopefully at Victor. "'He's waiting,' said Gaspode. "'What for?' said Victor apprehensively. Gaspode groaned. "'What do you think?' he said. "'Oh, yes, there's a good boy, Laddie.' Laddie yapped and tried to turn a somersault. "'What do we do next?' said Victor. "'I suppose we go in, do we?' "'Could be,' said Gaspode. Uh, or we could wait till she comes out. The fact is, I've never been very happy about, um, darkness, said Victor. I mean, night-time is OK, but pitch darkness. I bet Cohen the Barbarian ain't afraid of the dark, said Gaspode. Well, yes, and the black shadow of the desert. He's not afraid of the dark either. OK, but, and Hawanderland Smith, Balgrog Hunter, practically eats the dark for his tea, said Gaspode. "'Yes, but I'm not those people,' wailed Victor. "'Try telling that to all those people who handed over their pennies to watch you being em said Gaspode. He scratched at an insomniac flea. "'God, it'd be a laugh to have a handleman here now, wouldn't it?' he said cheerfully. "'What a comedy feature it'd make. Mr. Hero not going into the dark, we could call it. "'It'd be better than turkey legs. It'd be funnier in a night at the arena. "'I reckon people would queue for the... Ch "'All right, all right,' said Victor. "'I'll go a little way in, perhaps.' "'He looked around desperately at the dried-up trees around the hollow. "'And I'll make a torch,' he added. End of CD 7